I have been uh, so blessed by the ways that God has worked through the worship team to, uh, to guide us into God's presence, but also to communicate exactly what we've been talking about this week. There, there is, uh, for me, when I was a, a new believer, I was taught through worship. I was taught through the, the hymns and the songs that we sang, and there is so much rich teaching and theology in the songs that we've been singing this week. And I just really appreciated that. It's been, it's been more than just being able to, being able to express uh, devotion and, and worship and adoration uh, to God for me this week. It's been, it's been instructional. I've been fed through the worship, and I hope you have too. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you continue the good work that you've been doing all this week in our hearts and actually started before we even ever got here and will continue after this week is over. You are beckoning us to come closer and helping us to grow our roots a little deeper this week. You disciple us, you form us over a lifetime. And so with that long view in mind, Lord, at this little point on this journey tonight, would you meet us again and draw us a little closer to your heart and help us to share a little more deeply in your holiness, in your name, amen. Well, I do not have to tell you that we live in incredibly polarized, divided times. We see it on just about every sphere of society over a host of issues. We see it in politics, in the workplace. We see it in schools, sometimes even in our own families. And sadly, we see it in the church. People are drawing lines in the sand, labeling one another. Are you with us or against us? Are you one of us or are you one of them? It's exhausting. (laughs) It's exhausting. The divisions around us are causing tremendous anxiety. I think your generation may be, and I'm so sorry that this is happening, one of the most anxious generations because there's so much that is going on around you to to process, to deal with. There's so much anxiety and stress and depression. And the media is not helping because fanning the flames of division in our world is pretty good for business. It seems like we have less and less in common and that we're becoming strangers to one another, even enemies. Am I being melodramatic? (laughs) I don't think so. I mean, doesn't it feel like that some days? Don't, Don't you think, like, what is happening? So many times over the past few years, I've thought, what is happening? And I wonder, Lord, am I part of the problem? What what can I do to make things better? And unfortunately, there are some in the church that have not been making things better. And there are many godly people who have have, have modeled grace and reason in these polarized times who've done their best to be agents of reconciliation and healing. But in some very public and very painful ways, the church has actively made things worse. And we're not going to get into a long discussion about how and why tonight, 
I'm sure you all have your own opinions about the sins of the church, and they are many. But let me just say that a lot of people your age, and frankly my age too, feel a little disillusioned by the church. And some have even gone so far as to say they're disgusted with the church. And some are just done. They're just done. Not done with Jesus, but they are done with the church. And so, friends, the, the, the American church has, for many, many people, lost a lot of its credibility due to the ways that some of us have behaved during this pandemic, due to the ways that some of us have behaved during the last election cycle, due to the ways that some of us have responded to the Black Lives Matter movement or this movement or that movement, due to the ways that some of us treat the LGBTQ community or immigrants or people who don't agree with us. And we've lost our credibility and we've damaged our witness. And it's happened because we do not consistently embody the holiness of God in all that we say and do. And so we need to be given new hearts. Not hearts of stone, but hearts of flesh. Not hardened hearts, but soft hearts. Able to empathize with others. Able to listen. Able to love. And so what do we do when we don't see eye to eye with other people? What can we do about the polarization in our culture? What can we do to be peacemakers in a world that seems to want to fight. Well, the New Testament gives us some very clear guidance on how to handle conflict. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives a quick lesson on anger management and conflict resolution. In Matthew 5, verse 21, Jesus says, You've heard that our ancestors were told, You must not murder. If you commit murder, you're subject to judgment. We all get that, right? But Jesus says... If you're even angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, the word here in the Greek is raka. Or it's a Hebrew. It's raka, which is some uh, uh, insult, you know? Idiot. You are in danger of being brought before the court. And if you curse someone, you are in danger of the fires of hell. What is Jesus saying here? That we can never be angry? No. Some ancient manuscripts include the words we, we found in the New Testament, include the words without cause. So if you are angry with someone without cause, without justification, then you're subject to judgment. And there is such a thing as righteous anger, Anger over a genuine injustice or abuse or exploitation. In other words, the kind of anger that God experiences is righteous and legitimate, valid anger. And because God is holy in all, in all things, even the way that God is angry is holy. But let's be honest, a lot of the times we, we get angry for no good reason. We're just irritated. We're inconvenienced because things didn't go our way. We didn't get our way. Or, or we don't have the whole picture sometimes. And sometimes we get angry because we're afraid or because we're embarrassed. Sometimes we just get angry because we're hungry or we're tired. We get hangry, right? 
And so what happens in our anger is that we project onto other people in, uh, and in our hearts, we, we end up condemning them. And we convict them in our hearts. We write them off as idiots. We curse them in our hearts or with our lips. In other words, we hold them in contempt. We make them somehow lesser than us. How could someone be that stupid? What a jerk. I would never do something like that. And in our anger, we end up dehumanizing people. And Jesus is saying that is actually the same bitter root that leads people to violence and even murder. When you see someone as less human than you are. Holy people do not dehumanize others when they make us angry. And we are where we are in the world today because there is a bitter root in our hearts. A tendency to dehumanize others when they push our buttons or when we perceive them as a threat. And that is not holiness. That is not God. That's not the heart of God. Well, what about when someone is angry with us? What do we do? Well, Jesus goes on. He says, if you are presenting a sacrifice at the altar in the temple and you suddenly remember that, that, that someone has something against you, leave your sacrifice there at the altar and go and be reconciled to that person and then come and offer your sacrifice to God. And none of us like it when somebody is angry with us. We, we, we tend to have either this fight or flight response, right? Some of us go into the conflict. Some of us run from it. Some of us ignore it. We have this fight or flight response. And our heart starts pumping when somebody gets angry with us, right? Or even if you get an angry text or an angry email, you just, your blood pressure goes up. We get knots in our stomach. We can't think straight. Sometimes we can't sleep. We get defensive. And we start thinking about all the reasons why we should be angry at them. Sometimes we just run for the, from the conflict. Sometimes we freeze up. But Jesus says that mending broken relationships is so important that he would rather we not go to church to perform acts of piety and devotion until we have pursued reconciliation. So holy people not only want to be right with God, they want to be right with their brothers and sisters. They desire to be right with God and their neighbors, and they have a bias toward reconciliation. Now notice that Jesus doesn't say that the person's anger is necessarily justified. They just have something against you. They may have good reasons, and they might not. But the relationship is broken. Now, it's not always practical. It's not always possible to be in perfect harmonious relationship with every person before we go to church or spend time with God right if we if that were true we would never be able to worship with a clear conscience but we ought to have a strong bias toward reconciliation why because that is what God is like that is God's heart that is holiness Have you ever had something against God? A grievance with God? Maybe you've actually been angry with God. 
And many of the people we read about in Scripture complain to God. Even people who don't believe in God sometimes seem to be angry with God. How does God respond to them? He moves towards them. He leaves his throne and comes into the world so that we might be reconciled to him. Okay, but what about? (laughs) What about when someone is genuinely wrong? When they have acted in bad faith? When they've hurt us? When they've sinned? Well, what do we do then? Are we still supposed to reconcile? If we have something against them, isn't it? Didn't Jesus, say, Jesus just say it's their responsibility, right? To come to us and work things out? I'm waiting. Well, in Matthew 18, Jesus says, If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault. Just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've won them over. If they will not listen, well, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. And if they still refuse to listen, tell it, tell it to the church. In other words, share it with the community. And if they refuse even to listen to the community, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Okay, so, so talk to them. Just, just talk to them privately. Don't call them out in public. Don't blast them on Facebook. Don't, don't, don't shame them. Engage them privately, kindly, graciously, truthfully. And remember that Jesus tells you, if, if you're going to confront people about their faults, better take a good look in the mirror first. He says, don't be a hypocrite. Take the plank out of your own eye. And then you will be able to clearly see so that you can remove the speck from your brother or sister's eye. And at the same time, there is such a thing as sin. There are some things that are harmful, that lead to death of the mind or the body or the spirit, and they need to be named and confronted. In fact, Hebrews 12 says that one of the key indicators of spiritual maturity, you know you're spiritually mature, you're growing as a Christian, if you have the ability to distinguish between right and wrong. There is such a thing as right and wrong. It's not all gray. Yes, issues are complicated, but there is such a thing as right and wrong, and there is such a thing as sin, and there is such a thing as righteousness, and God wants to teach us these things. But holy people are both truth-tellers and grace-givers. They don't turn a blind eye to sin, whether it's their own or other people's, but they do so without trampling on people's dignity. As Anthony of Siraz put it, our calling is to save, not to smash. Okay, Hulk, don't smash. Jesus came full of truth and grace. And that is how we ought to approach those who are harming themselves and their neighbors. We make every effort to address the problem privately. And if that doesn't work, we bring some others into the conversation. If necessary, bring it before the whole community. Whatever community would be appropriate in that context. But sometimes there comes a point where more talking 
doesn't seem like it's going to help. You've said all that can be said. No progress is being made. And Jesus says, in that case, then we treat people like we would a pagan or a tax collector. We say, yes. <laughs> because we know how people treated pagans and tax collectors in Jesus' day. They shunned them. They kicked them out of the community. They cut off their relationship. So finally, if the person stubbornly refuses to see the errors of their ways, I have permission to cancel them. I've done all I can do. And now I'm done. We're done. And all that seems to make sense from a worldly perspective, right? Until we remember how Jesus treated pagans and tax collectors. And Matthew, who many attribute as the author of this gospel, Matthew would know, wouldn't he? He was a tax collector. And so in Matthew 9, and this story is also found in Mark 2, we read what, what we heard uh, earlier. We read that, that, that Jesus, he's back in his hometown. He's just heal, uh, healed a, a paralyzed man. And the crowds are amazed, as they usually are, and they give praise to God. And it, we, we read that as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. And while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they asked the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And on hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. How did Jesus treat tax collectors and pagans? He welcomed them. He included them. He even honored them. He ate and talked and laughed and cried with them. He listened to them. He taught them. And when necessary, he corrected them with patience and wisdom and gentleness. Jesus loved them into the light. And did they have a change of heart? Absolutely. Did it happen overnight? No. But Jesus did not shun them or cut them off. He pursued them. And the Apostle Paul reminds us that it is God's kindness that leads us to repentance. He writes in 1 Corinthians that love always perseveres, never gives up, never fails. The relentless, holy love of God is the only hope that we have for healing what is broken in this world because it is not like human love. Holy love is love for one's enemy. And until the whole world is saturated in that kind of love, we will not know peace. We will not be whole. Is that kind of world even possible? It, it just, it sounds so idealistic. 
How could anyone have such a profound change of heart, let alone all of us? Uh, and now we're all familiar with Jesus' words in Matthew 19, 26. You've heard it many times. We see it on bumper stickers and coffee mugs. With God, all things are possible. And we love that promise, and it's true. But when Jesus said those words, he was responding to actually a very specific question. He wasn't talking about achieving your dreams or living your best life. All oh, things are possible. I can do anything with God. He was responding to a very specific question. Because a rich young man had just asked Jesus what he had to do to gain eternal life. And Jesus told him to sell all, his, all of his possessions and give to the poor and follow him. And then the man went away very sad because he had a lot of wealth. And then Jesus said to his disciples, truly, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were shocked. And they said, well, the, well, who can possibly be saved? Because if we're being honest, we all have things that we hold back from God. Who among us has really truly given up everything for God? And that is when Jesus says, with human beings, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. In other words, when, when God gives you his heart and changes you from the inside out and makes you holy, anything is possible because you are no longer limited by your past or your sins. You are free to follow Jesus with your whole self. You can give away your wealth. You can give up your job. You can leave your home. You can even love your enemy. You can live a holy life, set apart for God and for the sake of the world. God can have it all. That is what Jesus meant when he said, with God, all things are possible. And so on our own, no, we cannot heal the division in the world. But with God, nothing is impossible. And so what can we do to become God's instruments of peace? in an increasingly hostile world? Well, two things. First of all, as I said, we can develop a bias towards reconciliation. A bias towards reconciliation. Remember that God's holiness compels him to move toward, not away from, the ugly and broken things of the world. And as his heart becomes our heart, that becomes our instinct too. We develop a bias not towards division, but towards reconciliation. And that means we are willing to make the first move. Do you notice that no matter who is at fault in a conflict, Jesus says, you go first. You go first. If your neighbor has something against you, leave your gift at the altar, go be reconciled. If your brother or sister sins, go and talk to them. They refuse to listen to you or, or to a small group of friends or to the whole community and treat them like a tax collector. Extend grace. Invite them to dinner. Treat them with kindness. Have a bias towards reconciliation. It's always your turn. Now, I, I want to clarify. I am not talking about enabling someone who is being abusive to you or to others. I am not talking about continuing to stay in a toxic relationship that is damaging to your physical or mental or emotional health. If someone is hurting you, you have permission to walk away. And if you've experienced trauma 
from an unhealthy relationship, talk to somebody who can help you, to help you heal. We should never put the onus on victims to confront or reconcile with their abusers. We, the people of God, need to stand up on their behalf. What I am talking about is what Paul writes in Romans 12, 18. He says, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. In other words, to the extent that God gives you the grace and the ability to be a peacemaker, to heal the divisions in this world, do that. Don't wait for an invitation. Love your enemy. Second, we can learn to build longer tables. In a time of polarization, we don't need higher walls. We need longer tables. In other words, we practice Christ-like hospitality. Learn how to disagree without being disagreeable. In fact, Dr. Boone has written two outstanding books on this subject called A Charitable Discourse, talking about the things that divide us. They are phenomenal. I think they should be uh, required reading for anyone who desires to be a peacemaker. Now, we often talk about fellowshipping with other believers. Usually what we mean is Christians hanging out together, like we're going to fellowship over some Nashville hot chicken tomorrow, right? <laughs> Yeah, it often involves eating, okay? But that's actually not what the word fellowship means. Uh, the word fellowship, koinonia in the Greek, in the Bible, there's actually uh, two words that we translate as church in the Bible. One is ecclesia, which is a community that's gathered, assembled for a purpose. And then the other is koinonia. Now, koinonia, we don't have an English word to kind of capture this, but it means something along the lines of communion or sharing or participation. And it's more than having a potluck after church. It's even more than having a Bible study. Fellowship in the early church meant that Jews and Gentiles, people who had been enemies for centuries, had become one in the body of Christ. Breaking through years and years, thousands of years of separation, they came together as sisters and brothers. In other words, koinonia is not about eating. It is about who you are eating with. It's been said that we lay down our weapons to eat. And so we don't just eat with our friends. We eat with our enemies. When we only spend time with people in our own in-group, the people who look and think and act like us, that's not koinonia, that's a click. The church is meant to be a diverse global community that often has almost nothing in common with each other except that we have all been loved and called and transformed by Jesus. Fellowship means the art and practice of becoming fellows. The intentional work of going from being foes to being friends and from being friends to becoming family. That's fellowship. Fellowship is about kinship with our enemies. We don't need higher walls. We need to build longer tables. The late Rachel Held Evans said, the scandal of the gospel is not who it keeps out, but who it lets in. You know, we're going to be surprised 
by who we see in the kingdom of God. Many that we considered our enemies will be there because Jesus called them friends. I'm going to be like, what are you doing here? And they'll be like, I was thinking the same thing about you, right? <laughs> We're going to be surprised by who is in the kingdom because Jesus called them friends even though we called them enemies. God's holiness leads God to do whatever it takes to reconcile us to God and to each other. Holy love is love for one's enemy. And it perseveres in the face of hate and it covers a multitude of sins and it keeps no record of wrongs. This is the kind of love that God has extended to you and grows in you and spreads through you, through us. In Ephesians 2, Paul writes that Christ himself is our peace who has made Jews and Gentiles one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. He says his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one Body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, which he put in by which he put to death by their hostility. And he came and preached grace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. And through him, we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Peace is something that we make together with God. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, not the peace enjoyers, the peacemakers, because they will be called children of God. Peace is not a feeling. It's not even the absence of conflict. Peace is not pretending that we don't have differences. Peace is not dismissing people's very real pain and anger. Peace is costly. It was costly for God. Why should it be any different for us? It's costly for us. Peace is something we make, not with force, but with love. And it requires a commitment toward reconciliation. This is what it means to be a holy people who follow a holy God. And I want us to spend a moment just reflecting as a response to tonight, I'm going to ask the worship team to come up and just provide just some reflective music as we um, go into a time of kind of processing and reflection. I'm going to ask you this question, and, and you're going to use your phones for this. Who do you need to reconcile with? Who has something against you? Who has something? Somebody must have something against you. How do you move towards that person in love? Who is someone that you might have something against? Maybe you're troubled by something that they, they did. How do you move towards that person in love? Insofar it depends on you. How can you be a peacemaker? And what I'm asking you to do is not to wait for an invitation. Set the table for reconciliation, just as Jesus has set it for you. This is what it means to be a holy people. 
And so what I'm going to encourage you to do is on your phones, I want you to write a letter, a text, an email, to someone with whom you need to repair a relationship. Maybe you've done something to upset them. Maybe they've done something that hurt you. Maybe you, you don't even know what's going on. But a wall has been built between you and someone else. And I want to, uh, you to allow the Holy Spirit to guide you. And you write a, write a letter to that person. Now, you don't have to send it. You don't have to send it. Maybe the Lord will lead you to do that, but you don't have to. Write a letter that sets the table for reconciliation. And maybe you don't send it. Maybe this is just for you. Maybe God just wants you to read your own words. Maybe there isn't a particular person that you're upset with. Maybe in your anger and your frustration and disappointment, you've been upset with a whole group of people. Them. Whoever them are for you. Those people. And they... In some way, you have made them out to be lesser than you. Less than human. Less smart. Less moral. Less godly than you. They're not people anymore. They're just a label. In your mind, you've dehumanized people who are made in the image of God. Write a letter to that group of people. And let the Spirit guide you. And this is how we're going to end tonight. In a few minutes, you know, someone will come up and pray a blessing over you and you can quietly leave. And some of you might need to sit here for half an hour and think about what you're writing. My encouragement to you is that we would become peacemakers, bridge builders, table setters, enemy lovers, a holy people for a generation that desperately needs to experience the grace of God. May the Spirit guide you. Thanks for joining us for Chapel today. Be sure to check back every Tuesday and Thursday for our next gathering.